If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Tuesday, July the 14th, and welcome back to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. I'm Bill Whalen, a research fellow here at the Hoover Institution and the Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow in Journalism. My guest today joining me via Zoom is Jennifer Burns. Jennifer Burns is a Hoover Institution Research Fellow and an Associate Professor of History at Stanford University. A leading independent expert on Ayn Rand and the American conservative movement, Jennifer Burns is the author of the acclaimed biography, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. At the moment, she's working on an intellectual biography of Milton Friedman, the famed Nobel economist and Hoover Institution's senior fellow. That's why I asked Jennifer to do this podcast with me as July 31st is Milton Friedman's birthday. He was born on July 31st, 1912 to be exact. He passed away in November of 2006. Jennifer, welcome to Area 45. Great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. So let's get into Milton Friedman, but first let's talk a little bit about Jennifer Burns. I'm always curious as to how people take up certain professions. What drew you to the work of a historian? Was this a family practice or did you just have an epiphany one day that you wanted to study history? Uh, you know, we were a great family of readers. So I have always loved to read and, you know, fiction, nonfiction, kind of time travel to other places and spaces and at the same time, I really like being able to ground myself in something. And when I started taking history classes in college, I realized it was a great mix of freedom and structure. So in other words, I could study anything, anywhere, anytime, pretty much, as long as it wasn't right now. And it was history, yet at the same time, it had a very developed method, tradition, um, looking at documents, weighing evidence, trying to bring different perspectives together. So I think it's that sort of combination of freedom and structure um, that led me down this path. And when we talk history, that's a very broad topic. So what uh, specific form of history interests you? Well, at this point, I'm specializing in American history. So when I was younger, I took classes in everything. And over time, I gravitated towards American history. And I began thinking a lot about political ideas and how they influence um, you know, how people vote, how people live their lives, the leaders we choose. And part of that, I think, was um, a, a trying to understand how ideas um, take shape in the real world and shape the real world. So how these sort of abstract concepts. The other, in terms of my focus on conservative intellectuals and thinkers, is I didn't learn much about those figures in school, yet I was aware of them, you know, from my own private life. And I felt like there was this really big gap between ideas that had been important and meaningful in the American political tradition and the ones that I myself or other students might encounter in university or high school classes. So my scholarship sort of began as a way to kind of bridge those two worlds. And I think that's really more important today than, than when I began. And so that's something that means a lot to me in terms of my research and my writing. Okay. If you were to throw a dinner party for, say, three or four historians, who would you invite? They could oh, be that's a great li question. Living, living or deceased. Just pick, pick your favorite. Well, I mean, Frederick Jackson Turner is kind of the uh, archetype of the American historian. Um, W.E.B. Du Bois would be absolutely fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, 
let's see who else. I mean, as soon as you said dinner party, I was like, well, I'd, I'd love to hang out with Ayn Rand. I understand she was unpleasant, but still <laughs> want to experience that, that magnetism uh, for myself. And so she doesn't really count as a historian, um, but we'll go with that one for now. <laughs> okay, very good. And fi final Jennifer Burns question, you're stranded on a desert island with one history book to read. What, what is that history book that you would read and underline and study and restudy and think, gee, this is smart? Oh my goodness, Bill, this is a tough question. Um, what book would I take with me? Um, Please don't say Howard Zinn. No, no, I'm not going to say something like that. I'm thinking, you know, I might actually be interested in taking a work of fiction, you know, that's oh. set in a historical setting, something like War and Peace, something really long that I could go over and over and kind of mine for historical detail and artistic uh, okay. inspiration as well. I will take that as an intellectual answer, and that's a segue to talking about Milton Friedman. Can you explain to me, Jennifer, what exactly an intellectual biography is? I, I assume it's the opposite of what Donald Trump's niece just did to her uncle. <laughs> uh, probably so. It really means that what I'm interested in is the ideas um, and setting them in with, within the context of the person's life, but also within the context of their larger historical and social environment. So. In terms of Milton Friedman, he his ideas and his life were very um, intertwined. So there's not a ton of distance between um, you know a biography and an intellectual biography. But it it means that what I'm doing in my work is I'm trying to use him as a lens to talk about the growth and development of American economics as a discipline, changes in thinking about the relationship of the markets and the state, the growth of the American conservative movement. Um, the growth of other political movements and, and economic changes around the world. And so Friedman is my vehicle. And so I do care about him as a person, but I was laughing. I mean, the archives here have incredible material. And one of the first things I found when I started this project was all the slips from the Quadrangle Club and the University of Chicago for his lunches, you know, like years of these. And so you're probably not, I'm probably not going to include the detail that he almost always ordered vanilla ice cream, right? Because that's a biographical detail, but it doesn't tell us too much uh, of more general historical significance. So I think what it means is that I try to always think about how does this particular anecdote of the person illuminate um, his thinking, his contribution, or the broader world. For readers who are interested in learning about Ayn Rand and my book on Ayn Rand, what that really meant was because she had a very operatic and controversial personal life, I did not make that the focus, although a lot of material on that is in the book, but I was really interested in Rand as a public figure rather than Rand as a private individual. And same thing for Friedman. So who is Friedman as a public thinker, as a professor, as an intellectual, rather than who is Friedman as a father, um, a brother, a husband. There are elements of that in the book, but that's not my focus necessarily capturing that aspect of him as a person. Right. Now, I've never written a book, and you have, Jennifer, and I find it to be a daunting proposition. I'm used to writing op-eds and essays, 600 words, 1,000 words, 2,000 words sometimes, but I've never stretched my legs like you have and written a book. How does one approach Milton Friedman, who is obviously a very large figure in economic history, uh, has a lot of papers, a lot of material? How do you pull this together? Well, I think that goes back to my thoughts on history as a discipline, that freedom and structure, because it's similar with biography. What I love about biography is you kind of know when the story ends and you know, sorry, when it begins and when it ends, although the ending is a little fuzzy, um, and you have some basic contours of the life, high points, low points, 
a location, but from there you sort of get to pick. So most of my research started in the archive. I mean, I dove in, I found those um, lunch receipts, I found a bunch of other stuff. I didn't necessarily know what it all meant. Mm -hmm. So after getting a little bit of a sense of important and interesting things in the archive, I then kind of backed out and I did a lot of reading in the history of economics. Um, you know, I picked up Alfred Marshall and, you know, started reading Marshall. Um, so some of it was reading primary source texts and then some of it was reading interpretations. Mm -hmm. And I sort of stumbled across this whole field of the history of economics, which is kind of an orphan right now because most historians are less interested in economics and economic history than they were. And most economists could likewise care less about history. So it's kind of been abandoned by both fields, yet nonetheless, there has grown a community of scholars who are really interested in this stuff. And so I sort of found this new world of dissident economists and dissident historians who were doing different things. And that's been incredibly useful to me and I'm very grateful to those scholars. Um, and then, like I said, the resources, the, you know, the archives at the Hoover, and then the people around the Hoover, many of whom knew Friedman personally, would, you know, maybe give me a clue about something I should look at or tell me how, you know, his ideas had still shaped them and were shaping the work they were doing. And so then that would help me understand how to focus on it. But it really is learning by doing. Um, I just sort of dove in and started writing and now when I look at what I wrote earlier, I realized how much I had to learn, but now I'm feeling, it's been years, I don't want to say how many that I've been working on this project and life has happened along the way, but um, you just kind of have to do it. And I actually feel more comfortable in some ways really going deep than I find it sometimes more challenging to do these, these uh, quick sort of hot takes or these shorter pieces. So it's almost easier for me to write more than to write less. So Jennifer, I have long been fascinated by the fascination with Milton Friedman. The Economist, for example, said of him, quote, he is the most influential economist of the second half of the 20th century, possibly of all of it. Why is Friedman sui generis, Jennifer? Why does he stand above other economists? Um, that's a great question. I, I answer it in a couple of different ways. Um, one is that he became a spokesperson for this value of individual freedom that has very resonant in his own day and continues today. And so he wasn't afraid to be, he sometimes called himself an old fashioned preacher. Mm -hmm. You know, he wasn't afraid to speak in, in a moral language and to really um, say what he thought was right and to promote it. So that's one that he became um, widely known as a, as a media figure as much as a scholar or an intellectual. Um, he also was one of the seminal thinkers of the conservative movement that emerged in the 20th century. Right. Um, he wrote some of its defining books. He worked with its defining figures from Barry Goldwater to Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. And then really though, I do think underneath all that is his work as an economist. And you know what those quotes are pointing to is that he carved out an alternative to the, the, the dominant framework of Keynesian economics which gave government a really central role in managing demand. And he uh, reasserted the importance of individual and private economic activity as driving prosperity set within, and this is critical, a stable monetary framework. So he was not a fire breathing, you know, burn down the state and let's have nothing. He did see a role for the state in structuring competition and creating rules of the game, but it was really a different philosophy, a different outlook. And he did an enormous amount of research and scientific work that, you know, while it's no longer state of the art, is still left its mark on the field and is still something that scholars can learn from today.
Right. The uh, the Ronald Reagan connection is interesting in this regard, Jennifer. So uh, Milton Friedman would have been born about 18 months after Ronald Reagan. Reagan born in 1911. Uh, they would have been two men shaped very much by the Great Depression, the politics of the New Deal. Uh, if you look at Milton Friedman's career, he is involved in the New Deal. He's involved in the Marshall Plan. He's advising, as you mentioned, Barry Goldwater. He's at these important turning points. Uh, but also the Friedman story fascinates me, Jennifer, because of just other influences. There is his growing up uh, in New Jersey, I believe. He was born in Brooklyn, I think, and then grew up in New Jersey. As he saw his parents work, his father passes away when he's uh, leaving high school. He has to work himself to get through college. And then he gets some remarkable breaks or just things which make a Milton Friedman, Jennifer. One, he, uh, he meets a high school professor who inspires him, who shows him a connection between poetry and math theories. Uh, he goes on to Chicago and is inspired by history professor by economic professors. So it's, it's, to me, it's this fascination blend of both intellectual curiosity, but just also just these, these certain stones that turned over him at certain points in his life. Yeah, there's a way in which he really does live the American dream. And I think that's part of the optimism and hopefulness you see throughout his, um, his written work. I mean, he, um, you're right, the way you characterized his family, and I had fun really digging into kind of the roots of what did his parents do and when did they come over and, you know, more details of the kind of ancestral story, but it was a he came from a very modest background. Um, he was able to, you know, by being excellent at his work and in his chosen profession to rise to a very, a very successful place in life. And it was also remarkable because it was a moment when barriers against the advancement of Jewish Americans were really falling right as he was coming into his own as a thinker and a scholar. And so I think he saw and experienced and lived in an expansion of freedom in his own life um, as those barriers of discrimination started to fall. And so it is really, it's, it's an epic story in a way when you look at um, small town New Jersey, you know, up to, if not a resident in the White House, at least someone who was very comfortable there and very comfortable with the people who live there. Let's talk about Friedman's influences. First of all, what in his career path might have uh, pushed him in a more conservative direction? Was it exposure to the New Deal and a large government? Um, and also, Jennifer, I'm curious as to what uh, what books were most influential in Friedman's life. What he to put to pose the Desert Island question to him, uh, what what he would have what would have been his go to books? So, um, you know, he he was a young man when the depression broke out and he saw its devastating effects around him and that was what by his telling shifted him from being someone who thought he might be an accountant or an actuary to being an economist which he understood meant you you thought about bigger questions right. and he then went to the university of chicago and i think it's that experience at the university of chicago that gave him a very distinctive um, intellectual framework and take on the world and it wasn't necessarily conservative in the way that we would understand it today, but what it did was it exposed him to what he called the sort of beauty and power of the price system. That in thinking about how resources were allocated in society, um, the free play of supply and demand expressed through prices was the most efficient and most fair and most conducive to freedom. And he really learned this from uh, his professor, Frank Knight, who is a very eccentric and strange man. And while writing the book, I became so fascinated with him. I had to sort of tell myself, okay, this book is not about Frank Knight and set him aside a bit. Um, and Knight was known as a, a, a more conservative economist, a great um, theorist of the price system and someone who really focused on the importance of risk and risk taking for um, economic growth and economic change. And so, 
Friedman came into Chicago at the depth of the Great Depression, it's not true that he found a complete laissez-faire atmosphere there in Chicago. And that's, I think, a misconception I will try to clear up. And it's one of the things that most surprised me in my research. I think I had imbibed this um, sort of simplistic idea that it's Chicago, because it was a conservative place and it was the Great Depression that, you know, his professors and the general atmosphere would have said, oh, this is fine. There's nothing wrong here. There's nothing to be done. And in fact, his professors and Friedman himself considered this a great crisis, a great national emergency, um, were very supportive of relief measures, were supportive of deficit spending, um, and wanted to uh, do something. They were not sort of standby. In fact, really the only you know, person of consequence who said do nothing was Treasury Secretary Andrew Mellon, you know, who said it's just a correction, liquidate everything. So that was my first surprise. Doesn't mean they were, you know, in favor of an activist government as we might understand it. It did mean they had a much stronger sense of what the state could and should do in an emergency setting. Over time, though, Friedman and his professors came to see the way the New Deal was going as problematic in two ways. One was that it began to expand from emergency relief measures, um, which included banking regulation, which they all supported, to things like the National Recovery Administration, which, which set uh, price guidelines, um, working hours, became much more, in their view, intrusive into how the economic system worked. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they realized that a lot of the decisions around the New Deal were being driven by the idea of secular stagnation, that the economy had fundamentally changed in some way and that the government therefore had a new and ongoing and permanent role in demand management and demand stimulation because the economy simply wouldn't regenerate of its own accord. And so I see, you know, letters and things Freeman was not publishing at this stage in his career where he just does not buy secular stagnation. He might buy there's a crisis. Um, and something needs to be done. And later he'll put a monetarist interpretation on what caused the crisis. But he doesn't think there's been like a phase transition in the economy. And so he doesn't think there needs to be a profound rethinking of the role of the government. So, so as others start to do that rethinking and, and build political movements around the New Deal, um, that's when he sort of emerges as more of a recognizable conservative. Right, so he in 1964, he's advising Barry Goldwater um, where is Friedman in the in the late? So he does a Marshall Plan late forties. Where is Milton Friedman in the fifties and the early sixties? So that's a great question. He is at the University of Chicago, um, which is an incredible place to be. F. A. Hayek is there as well. Um, he's doing a lot of work over at the law school, and he is embarked on this very intense collaboration um, with a brilliant economist in New York, Anna Schwartz, and they are sending data and letters back and forth to try to crack the code of what happened um, with money in the history of the United States. You know, and they're coming up with this incredible book of monetary history and they're going decade by decade to look at the banking structure, the amount of money circulating, and they're, they're building from scratch this enormous data set. And it's interesting because in the 50s, his great lifelong friend, Arthur Burns, approaches him and says, would you like to join the Council of Economic Advisors? And he says, no, I'm too busy. Um, and this is really remarkable that he has that opportunity and he wants to focus on making his mark in academic economics. Mm -hmm. So for me, that's a really, it's the most intellectually rich decade almost because you know, I've mentioned a monetary history. There's a lot of other work he's doing. 
Um, he's also thinking very deeply about Repu the Republican Party and Republican politics, and he's very um, he's anxious about what he calls the McCormick-McCarthy wing of the Republican Party. Mm -hmm. So he's worried about um, a sort of populist xenophobic tint that he sees in um, the Chicago Tribune. It's his hometown newspaper. He worries about the after effects of McCarthy, but he believes very firmly that there can be a sort of moderate um, Republicanism that will eventually um, fend off these extremist attacks. So he's keeping his eye on this, this what was called in the day extremism, but he's not, he hasn't lost faith with the capacity of the political system to handle that. So in terms of his public life, he's not publishing a ton and everything he is publishing is pretty technical, detailed academic economics. Um, but he's also seeding some of the ideas that will come to fore later. So you mentioned the Marshall Plan. You know, he comes up with the idea of we should have floating international exchange rates. Like, that's what we should do. Um, and it's sort of a crazy outlandish idea in the 50s, and it'll come to pass 20 years later, in this, you know, 25 years later in, in, this, in the 70s. So he's getting a lot of his best ideas, but he's not really trying to retail them yet. Right. So I came to the Hoover Institution in 1999, Jennifer. So I had seven years to um, meet um, Milton Friedman and talked to him, and I hate to say I regret deeply, I never did approach him because while he was not a very tall man, he was a giant, and I just was thoroughly intimidated the idea of walking up to him and talking to him. Um, but if you could, as his biographer, ask him a few questions, just what would you, if you had 30 good minutes with him, what would you like to ask him? Uh, one would just be, how did you get so much done? You know, <laughs> what, what, were the, what were the ways you worked and managed all the different responsibilities would be really, uh, really interesting. So that's part of it. Um, I'd love to know more about, we can talk more about this later, but, you know, how did you and Rose work together? What, what you know, what role did she play in your um, intellectual life would right. be great. Um, I think those would be sort of my two. And then I'd also just be interested in, um, you know, seeing if seeing if he read things, I, I don't, as a graduate student, he did a lot of reading. Um, so I know he read John Stuart Mill. Um, I know he, you know, he read, he went back to Adam Smith. Um, he read uh, a couple popular historians at the time. So I know he was reading widely. And I, I wonder if he was still doing that throughout his life or later. Um, I see him becoming more and more driven by questions of economics and less interested in sort of the particular histories of different um, regions or areas of the world. And I wonder if that's true or if it just didn't come out in his work. That was great. Uh, so you mentioned Rose. Rose is his wife uh, and theirs was a love match. They were together for the better part of 75 years. Um, let me read to you, Jennifer, what he wrote about his wife. This is in his uh, Nobel Prize biography. You can find nobel.org. Uh, and here he is describing his first year at the University of Chicago, which is 1932-33, as you mentioned, the height of the Great Depression. He wrote, and I quote, personally, the most important event of that year was meeting a shy, withdrawn, lovely, and extremely bright fellow economic student, Rose Director. We were married six years later when our Great Depression fears of where our livelihood would come from had been dissipated, and in the words of the fairy tale, have lived happily ever after. Rose has been an active partner in all my professional work since that time. So Jennifer, what exactly did Rose bring to the table for Milton Friedman? So that is that is a question I ask myself almost every day. Mm -hmm. I know on a personal level, she brought him, you know, unconditional love, acceptance, support. Um, she managed their household affairs. She paid their taxes. She did a lot to lift the burden of ordinary life so that he could be free 
to focus on his work. So I, I know that's true. But I also know that she really helped him write Capitalism and Freedom. She helped him brainstorm his Newsweek columns. Um, and she encouraged him to take on a broader public role. Now, the challenge as a historian who really wants to, you know, always back everything up with documents and evidence is that um, she didn't leave a lot of traces. So, she, you know, she's, she's not in the archive. Um, so I have to use interviews and other methods to sort of figure out what, um, what her contribution was. I do think she helped him write in a different way that made his ideas um, easier for a public audience to understand and less technical. I think she got him out of economies and I know that or I, I believe that because while she was really busy as a full-time mother raising their children, he, he wrote in one particular way and when she became admittedly more engaged in his career, he started writing in a different kind of punchier, uh, more effective style. So I think there's a case to be made that she, you know, was a co-author in some very fundamental ways of his ideas, not that um, her ideas were significantly different than his, but um, that she helped express and shape them in certain ways. Right. I'm going to throw another Ronald Reagan parallel at you. Ronald Reagan is elected president in 1980, Jennifer. And in 1980, also at almost the age of 70, Milton Friedman films 10 one-hour shows called Free to Choose, each of which is 30 minutes of documentary and 30 minutes of discussion. Uh, to the first-time reader, viewer of Friedman, if they see Free to Choose, what stands out? Um, I think part of it is that... Um, well, first of all, it's it's incredibly broad. I mean, he's one episode he's in a sweatshop or he's in Hong, the street of Hong Kong. The next minute he's talking about the 19th century schoolhouse. Um, so he's giving you a set of ideas that he sees broadly applicable in different places and different times. Um, and then he really enjoys debate. There's a whole bunch of set piece debates with him um, going up against uh, various people who've been selected to, you know, sort of give him a good run. Um, and then I think the way he really um, quickly communicates uh, complicated economic ideas. So he, you know, he can communicate the idea of the division of labor in a very folksy and easy way to grasp. Um, so I think coming out around the time that Reagan was making similar arguments in the political sphere, it was part of a larger, um, I mean, it seems a growing awareness of these ideas, of these arguments, and a growing acceptance that maybe they were worth giving a try. Interesting. I'm now going to put you in the uh, position all historians hate, but brace yourself. And that is your subject, if they were living in this day and age, what would they think of X, Y, and Z? And mm -hmm. you always hear this of Lincoln and Jefferson and Washington and my goodness, Napoleon, all these great historical figures. If they're around today, what would they think? But let's let's play a little bit uh, with Milton Friedman in this regard. Uh, so Milton Friedman is famously a libertarian. And uh, he is not the Ayn Rand. You, you know this better than I, but as I understand, Jennifer, there's the Ayn Brand uh, view of, liberal, of, of libertarianism, which is essentially that it's a moral to initiate force on anyone else. Is that, mm -hmm. is that correct in a nutshell? Yeah, I think that's a strong tenet of hers, yes. Okay, with Friedman, I guess it's called consequential libertarianism in that you want the smallest, least intrusive government consistent with maximum freedom to follow one's own ways and values as long as it doesn't interfere with others. Fair enough? Uh, yeah, I will accept that distinction. Okay, so now we're in a time, Jennifer, of COVID, where we're having conversations about fundamental liberties and what government can and cannot do. Let me ask you this question. Would Milton Friedman be wearing a mask right now? Oh, great question. I think he would be wearing a mask. Absolutely. Um, 
I think, you know, there's a consequentialist argument to be made. Wearing a mask is the easiest and least intrusive thing to do compared to all of the other things that, that have been tried out um, so far. So I think one, an argument of pragmatism, he would say this is the easiest thing to do. Um, secondly, I mean, would he, I don't know if you want to go, would he mandate masks? Would he have a policy on it? I mean, when I think about how, how he would approach this, one, he, I mean, his most fundamental identity was as a scientist. So I think he would have been one of these people diving into the data, trying to understand it, trying to parse it. He also knew that you get the data and then you have to interpret it, that it doesn't speak with one voice, that it changes, that the way you put it together is really important. So I like to think that he would be, um, and he also prided himself on being able to change his mind and to say he was wrong. That was another very strong part of his identity. And so I like to think he would be following the data to the best um, of his abilities and um, being comfortable with the fact that some of it's confusing and some of it's contradictory, but feeling like you could still get a clear message out of it. And I also, so I imagine from all of that, it would result that there's good data to support wearing a mask and it's not a, as much of an infringement on your liberties as say, you can't leave home. And where have you been, Jennifer, on COVID monetary policy? And I guess for that matter, uh, since it's also happened after he passed away, federal stimuli. So again, I was thinking about that in the context of the Great Depression. And I think what I noticed again and again in Friedman's career is that he was able to identify certain situations as emergency situations. And in those, it, once it was defined as an emergency situation, he acted differently than in other situations. So I talked about the Great Depression that he and his professors at Chicago looking at the 25% unemployment rate said, we need major relief programs and it's okay to um, have deficit spending to make that happen. Similarly, if you look at um, uh, his work for the State Department, or sorry, the Treasury Department in World War II, um, people sort of make a big deal of the fact that he um, promoted taxation as a way to forestall inflation. Um, but he's very clear, uh, we're in a wartime situation and um, there are no goods to buy because so many uh, um, factories have been converted to wartime production. And so in the wartime situation, it's appropriate to tax people's income to prevent um, you know, too many dollars from chasing too few goods. So I think it's quite possible that he would look at this as a pandemic situation and say, in this pandemic situation, we have this huge shock to the system. We have this huge fall in demand that's driven not just by government mandate, but by people radically altering their behavior. Um, we have to do something. So I think the the attitude and approach of the Fed, and especially its efforts to support business, um, I think he would really support. The other thing that's interesting to think about is he was an advocate of um, close to what we would call a universal basic income. He was an advocate of cash grants as an anti-poverty program. Right. And he really disliked targeted programs that, you know, gave farmers money for being farmers and gave, you know, older people money for being older people and poor people money for being poor. You know, he thought you should provide a basic floor under society so that people could meet, meet their basic needs. And so to the extent that the CARES Act and the discussion around that has been, a lot of it has been thinking about how do we get 
money to people who are not going to be making a paycheck through no fault of their own because we're in this crisis. I think he would be supportive of those types of programs as well. Doesn't mean he doesn't worry about incentives and bad effects, but he had a very strong belief in the fact that people, if allowed to make their own decisions, will make good decisions. And all of those individual decisions added up are going to create a free society, a free economy, and more prosperity for more people. Right. Uh, that's interesting. You mentioned UBI. So if he had 30 minutes on free to choose to sit down with, let's say, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, would it be, would he lecture her on capitalism and why capitalism is a grand experiment? Or do you think he might find some common ground with her? Um, I'm not sure. I think his main area of concern would be um, uh, monetary policy, honestly, to the extent that AOC and the, the movement that she's part of have pushed forward some new ideas in terms of uh, monetary growth. It doesn't matter. Inflation is something that's not to be worried about. I think he would be very concerned about that. Um, I do think, I mean, I don't know much about um, Representative Cortez much, but she does, I think, come, have a small business background um, in her family. I think she has an immigrant story. I think he would try to draw out those commonalities because he really believed in in sort of building bridges and convincing people and debating with a smile on your face. I mean, those were those were real values. So I think he would differ um, quite a bit on her specific proposals, but I think he would say, we have the same values and we want to get to the same place. But um, so we have the same ends, but but my means are going to get us there and yours are not. And then he would have, you know, a lots of ingenious arguments for why that is so. Yeah, I'm just curious to what he would think about, you know, what has been a prolonged now attack on wealth and just capitalism in general and the idea that there are just aspects of the United States that are that are evil. Yeah, I mean, like I said, he did not um, he did not experience that in his life. And I don't think he'd be very receptive to um it's hard to say. I wouldn't want to put words in his mouth, but he was certainly someone who experienced the good side of the American dream, not the bad side. So I think that is what he would defend and that is what he would speak up for. Um, I, you know, I don't, he said very clearly, I'm not an egalitarian. He wasn't particularly troubled by um, inequalities of wealth or, um, but he was troubled by inequalities of opportunity. And in the last years of his life, he really focused on educational reform and he saw um, vouchers and other programs like that as a way to improve American schools. He thought that they were failing the students who needed them the most. And that's where Rose and he left their money. Right. So again, I think if there was any common ground, it would be on expanding equality of opportunity and trying to argue that you really need to focus on equality of opportunity rather than equality of outcome. Right. So next year marks uh, 40 years since Ronald Reagan uh, took the presidential oath, and it will also be 15 years since Milton Friedman passed away. What ideas, Jennifer, um, of Friedman's do you think will be influential uh, moving down the road as we look to the future? Well, I mean, there's two of his sort of more libertarianish ideas that are still bubbling away out there. Um, one is, I mean, he was an advocate of drug legalization towards the end of his days, as you know, was William F. Buckley. And so I think he'd actually be fascinated in watching the state level markets um, evolving as different um, substances are decontrolled and seeing what happens with that. And so he, right. you know, he believed if you control a trade, you get all kinds of bad 
effects um, from cartels to organized crime. So I think he'd be watching that very carefully. Um, and it's interesting because most of the arguments about that have been civil libertarian in nature. They haven't been economic in nature. Um, so I think he would have had something to contribute there. And then I think the discussion around whether it's universal basic income or cash grants. I mean, I think Friedman really put that idea on the American political map. He wrote about it in 1962. Um, there were some other economists, many of whom were friends of his who wrote about it. And then it got sort of picked up by economists in the Johnson administration who kind of laundered it and started talking about it more as their idea. But it comes from this belief in the price system that he started with that rather than provide kind of targeted subsidies or benefits and also rather than means test so that you only catch people when they're kind of hit rock bottom, you prevent them from hitting rock bottom by providing cash, which they then choose according to their individual values and their individual perception of need to spend as they, as they want. And so his argument was both a moral argument and an efficiency argument. And I think in the current policy conversation, it has been more of an egalitarian based argument. And I think Friedman is an interesting reminder. There's a lot of different ways to think about these proposals and their benefits. And so I think I see that conversation moving forward and in both of these. And then one more is, you know, the discussion of um, cryptocurrency and money. I know a lot of people who are interested in that are kind of returning to Friedman. What did Friedman say about money? How did he see it operate in the economy? What would he think about a digital currency or a stateless currency? And so I think um, that there's a lot of ideas still left to bat around involving that. I'm still trying to wrap my head around Milton and Rose Friedman going into a cannabis store and checking out how the free market works. So generally probably would have been horrified by the 35% tax on the product. But. That's probably true, right? So maybe he'd be banging away at that. <laughs> okay, final question for you, Jennifer. I don't know if you've read his acceptance speech at the Nobel Prize ceremony. Um, I probably have. I can't promise it's coming uh, to me clear as a bell if, of all the things of his that I've read, but what aspect of it did you want to? It's not exactly, well, I mean, focus. it's memorable in that he doesn't say anything terribly profound. It's not uh, like the, what is the movie, A Brilliant, A Beautiful Mind, where, you know, Russell Crowe gets up and gives his incredible moving speech. Uh, it's very short, it's very concise, but he raises a really interesting point, Jennifer. And what he tells the audience in kind of a good natured humor is that, um, you win a Nobel Prize and you become a celebrity. And all of a sudden people start asking questions about things that you really have no earthly idea. And I think what he points out in the, in the remarks, Jennifer, is that uh, a reporter asked him how much a John F. Kennedy letter would be worth. And then what is kind of politely saying is, how on God's earth would I know? Right. Um, but then he says that he sees this as a problem with economists who don't basically swim in their own lane. They don't stick to economics. And this to me is actually a rather profound warning because we live in a day and age in which economists are talking about things non-economic, they write columns, they go on television, and they're not sticking to their craft. So I wonder if Friedman would be, a, Friedman would be if we were alive today, be a little bothered by what he would see on cable television. Yeah, I, I mean, most generally, I'm sure cable television has devolved quite a bit from, from his own time. But I mean, I would say there's actually an interesting irony in that because and this is a, a minor theme in the book, but you know, Chicago developed this style of economic analysis that was so um, both simple and profound that it kind of broke the the edges of economics. And and it goes back to sort of Frank Knight and talking about economics is the science of choice under conditions of scarcity. And so if if you strip economics down to that, then you can actually take that anywhere. Right. Anywhere there's scarcity and choice, which is sort of a human condition, you can apply these methods of economics. So 
Friedman was actually part of that, and it was mostly his students. I mean, Gary Becker is a name that would be most identified with this, mm -hmm. the sort of first, you know, the, the origins of Freakonomics. Um, but Friedman did a bit of that in his own work. Um, for instance, he has an, an early paper on gambling, and he basically says, you know, economists have thought that gambling is sort of a psychological phenomenon, but I actually think there's a there's an economic method to it, and we can dissect it and understand it. So. I think he was actually part of that problem that he decried in that speech because he helped create a sort of a sort of toolkit of economic thinking that really quickly jumped the boundaries of the discipline. And if it wasn't if he wasn't leading the charge, he was certainly part of the intellectual atmosphere out, out of which those uh, those things developed. So it may be the like I've created a monster type of reaction he's having in that. But on the same time, it is true. Once you become a Nobel Prize winner, you know, he sort of moved from being an economist to being a, a cultural icon and, um, you know, the amount of sort of misinformation about what he was doing and saying uh, really, really increases quite exponentially. So I can understand how that would be frustrating. Okay, so you have the book coming up, and I mentioned Free to Choose. Uh, those listening to this podcast who want to uh, devour more of Milton Friedman, where should they go? Um, I would love it if people want to check out my website is jenniferburns.org. Um, from there, I do link out to um, Hoover's website, which has a lot of searchable um, documents. Um, it's a great search engine for um, Friedman speeches, writings, things of that nature. I'm on Twitter. I'm not super active, and most of what I post is my research. So if you want to check in on things I'm writing or talking about, um, that's a good place to look. And I do not have a publication date for the book yet, but um, maybe I can come back when I do and uh, we can do this again. Hey, Jennifer, I enjoyed the conversation. Again, thanks for doing this. This was fun. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th president of the United States. One wonders what those policy avenues would be if Milton Friedman were still with us. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us and tell your friends to have a listen. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Jennifer Burns and her Hoover fellows uh, straight to your inbox weekdays. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Institute, at Hoover I-N-S-T. Jennifer Burns is on Twitter, brave woman that she is. Her Twitter handle is at Prof Burns. That is spelled P-R-O-F-B-U-R-N-S, at Prof Burns. And she mentioned she has a website. The address for that is jenniferburns.org. Burns spelled as you might expect. Jennifer, as you might expect, J-E-N-N-I-F-E-R-B-U-R-N-S.org. By the way, you go to that website, you'll notice there is a Milton Friedman tab at the top. You can click on that and you can sign up for to be notified when the book is going to be released. I also mentioned her book on Ayn Rand that came out in 2009. The title again, Goddess of the Market, Ayn Rand and the American Right. And yes, you can get it on Amazon. So go check that out as well. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. On behalf of my colleague, Jennifer Burns, and my other fellow fellows here at the Hoover Institution, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll do our best here at Hoover Institution to help you stay informed. We'll be back soon with another podcast. Until then, take care. So long. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.